look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. and Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, from the NFL meetings in Phoenix, Arizona, my guests, Oakland Raiders coach Jack Del Rio, San Jose Mercury News veteran columnist Mark Purdy, and Rich McKay, the club president of the Atlanta Falcons, who's also the chairman of the NFL Competition Committee. I asked Rich McKay... What was the biggest surprise among all the rules that got changed this week at the NFL meetings? I think people were caught by surprise. I've been down the uh, overtime path before. People get very nervous about overtime and changing overtime. We'll get back to it. With the Raiders announcing a future move to Las Vegas, I asked Jack Del Rio, how much of a distraction is it going to be for Super Bowl contending Oakland Raiders? I think lead these guys through this. We'll, we'll see. It's definitely another piece uh, that you have to contend with. I asked Mark Purdy, what's the future of football in the Bay Area? If you told me now, today, that like tomorrow, that property that the Coliseum is on is available for development for a potential football stadium, I bet the NFL would get involved in that somehow. And now my conversation with the chairman of the NFL Competition Committee, Rich McKay. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King at the NFL owners meetings in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm here with Rich McKay, the chairman of the NFL competition committee. Um, And Rich, so uh, much to discuss, but I'm most curious about one thing that got tabled at these meetings, a very interesting proposal that was a brainchild of you, Bill Polian, and others to reduce the time in overtime this year uh, in 2017 from 15 to 10 minutes in the regular season, yet it was tabled. Why? I think it caught some people by surprise. Uh, you know, we this year we, we did not have a week between our competition committee meetings and the owners' meeting, which we typically do. In that week, we send all the proposals to the clubs. We have conference calls and go through the proposals with the clubs. We have a chance to kind of let them understand our reasoning. In this case, we didn't uh, because we didn't have enough time based on the calendar this year. So I think people were caught by surprise. Some of them put their hands up and said, hey, if I have to vote today, I'm not sure I would support. Uh, so I, you know, I took the position of fine. Let's make sure that we show you all the data. We only propose this rule. We're, number one, we we're going to propose it for one year only so people could see the results. Number two, it's only in the preseason and regular season. And it's based on just the number of snaps a player has to play and, and our concern about the fact we don't know what comes behind it, whether that's a game on Thursday night, whether that's travel across the country, all those things. So it, it, I, I understand I've been down the uh, overtime uh, path before. People get very nervous about overtime and changing overtime. Uh, we'll get back to it. Uh, I, I do feel we, we will definitely get back to it. What is the relevant data, do you think, that is going to be influential one way or the other that you're going to try to share with teams? Understanding uh, all the games and how typically how they end, how quickly they end. And, uh, you know, typically we're averaging about 17 plays uh, per overtime. This year that average went all the way up to 22. It went up to 22 this year only because we had three games go That went the minutes. whole way, yeah. Yeah, one got decided on the last play. And the other two went to tie. Finished in ties, yeah. So those, those were 37, 38 plays, a lot of plays in all three of those games. It drove the average up this year. Those are the games that concern us. Our feeling is that with 10 minutes, you're going to get the great, great, great majority of the games decided. People are going to play for the 10. They're going to know when the game's going to end. They're going to try to win the game at that end. We've got five-minute timing rules that would be in effect that 
slows the game down. We have a two-minute warning. We have What's, two timeouts. What do you mean a five-minute timing rule? Same rules we would have in the fourth quarter. We have, oh, okay. we have five-minute timing rules in the fourth quarter. We'd apply those same in, in overtime. So I think people are thinking, boy, this is a quick 10 minutes. We could have a long eight-minute drive. No, you, you're not going to have a long eight-minute drive because the timing rules are in effect. The two-minute warning is in effect. You've got timeouts. So we just need to spend a little time. It's okay. It's a, I think had we been here and decided we were going to vote on it tomorrow, we might be in a different place, but I think why, we're fine. Why are you in favor of this rule? Player safety. I think that um, – we, um, we ask a lot of our players, but we ask nothing more than game day. Game day is a, is a true test uh, for players. And so I think when you, when you look at any rule, we always try to look at the impact of plays per game. That, that's what we look at. And, you know, we've been a game that's, that's been at 154 plays per game to 157 for a long time. We've kind of tried to almost map it to there. Overtime is extra. And to us, we don't want too much extra. So I think that's the way we looked at it. Gut feeling, uh, what do you think will happen? Will it be brought up at the May meeting, do you believe? We, not, unless, not unless that we, we talk to the clubs that voice their concerns. You want to hear from them that they're satisfied. You know, that's the way our process works well. We don't want to just come back and vote uh, when the coaches aren't there and all of a sudden we voted a rule, and that's not the way we're going to operate with, with this rule, nor, nor should we. Um, so we'll reach out, we'll do surveys, we'll, we'll send all the data, and then we'll see. Rich, let's talk about some of the other uh, uh, rules that actually were passed here. Uh, and, and, and discuss, I think, what you have believed was borderline inevitable, and that is New York having control, having the final say of instant replay. Do you believe that's a wise move? And if so, why? Yeah. So I think that uh, let's go back to replay, right? So replay um, started uh, Tech Schramm and, and his group uh, brought replay to the NFL, I think, in 86. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, the problem replay had was we had a, we had a referee uh, that, uh, that sat or a, a replay official that sat in the booth at stadiums, made the decisions. Um, we, were, we were averaging, we had an 86% accuracy rate on replay, not on the field, on replay. So we weren't getting the replays right. So we voted the system out. My first year in the league in 92, we voted it out. Um, it didn't come back till 98. When it came back, uh, I think there were, I, I was just made the co-chair of the committee that year. Um, there were people on that committee, including myself and Bill Polian and others, that said, listen, this system's got to get fixed. And the only way it's going to get fixed is we need the referee, who is a true rules expert to be the one making this call not some official sitting in the replay booth and so i think it, it, it you know that's why we called it referee replay review that's was the name of it um and we felt like that gave uh everybody a little more um comfort that accuracy would would ensue and it did um and, and they've done very well i think when we took the next step and we had all of the technology we have where we could drive it into a central command, now you have a chance to make consistency even better. Because instead of having those 16 referees that are working on Sunday, looking at, looking at it through their own little lens, you have one lens. And that's sitting in central command. That's Dean and Al and whoever else is, is officiating a supervisor maybe that needs help with at 1 o'clock. So I just think all of a sudden we've moved to a more consistent um, – format for replay which I think if you ask coaches when it comes to officiating what is your number one goal it's consistency it's not people will say accuracy it's consistency they want to know when something happens what's going to happen from crew to crew and I think in replay I think that's what this central command will do for us was there any debate in the room and any questions in the room about whether there should be centralized replay? What teams were there? No. Teams saying that, hey, we, we you know we want it in the referees' hands. No, no, no. Did that surprise really you? Come, no, it, it, because I think we walked before we ran. I think when we first got the ability, technology-wise, to have uh, a, a central command, if you will, in New York, there was talk of, well, should we give the decision there? And the answer was no. We shouldn't give the decision that we got to prove it works. And I think we've proven it worked. And uh, I think the coaches have seen that. I think the referees, we had numerous referees that we dealt with in, in uh, Indianapolis 
and then again in um, uh, here in Arizona uh, to give us help and guidance and, and thoughts. How will the referees feel about it? I think the believe? referees, they're absolutely a part of the process. They're going to have a tablet. They're going to watch the play. They're going to talk to Dean. They're going to have two-way communication. Uh, I, I think the referees will be just fine. Um, I think you have to include them, though, because they're on the field. They've got to communicate with the coach. They've got to communicate with the fans. And you know what? They're pretty good at what they do. So I think, I think this process will work well and work well for them. Was there any debate about making it sort of a Major League Baseball type of thing or an NHL type of thing that it is all done on foreign soil and all they do is announce it? No. We, we did discuss it, and we said no to that. Um, Why? Because we feel like the, the referees need to be a part of the process. They are they're on the ground. They are truly the boots on the ground. Uh, they are rules experts. When, when you meet with these guys, sit in the room and talk about any rule, it's incredible how knowledgeable they are and how much experience they have. So for us to not use that experience in an exchange uh, with New York seemed like a waste to us. Plus, they have the next, they have the next step after the decision has been made, which they have to communicate with everybody. So we didn't like the look of just an earpiece around uh, their ear and they're told, here's the decision and they go. We like the idea that they are a part of the process. They can bring up issues uh, and they can then take the decision and communicate. So that's the way we looked at it. Last week, I talked to Roger Goodell and I asked him about the timing issues in games. And he told me something that really surprised me. He said the average length of a game per referee crew varies by seven minutes from the slowest to the fastest crew. And that shocked me how some crews are on average seven minutes slower than other crews. What do you do about that? Well, you, 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 you certainly look at it and we've been looking at it for a number of years and um, it is not where you want to be. Right. So let, First of all, I think you look at whenever you see averages, realize that there's, you know, they're only doing probably 16 to 15 to 14 games. So they can, it just takes two or three games for them to get their average a little out of whack. Now, <clears throat> when you start getting seven minutes out uh, on the top end, that's different, right? And I think what Dean uh, will do next year, and I think what he started to do this year, is you have to start dealing with that crew on a weekly basis of what is taking so long. Let's go through penalty administration. Let's go through crew conferences. Let's go through how are we communicating. Because what we've done really used a little bit of European soccer a number of years ago, and we put the earpieces in everybody's ear so they could communicate. Well, that was done specifically not for accuracy. It, it was done for speed. And it was so that you could communicate quickly. Hey, there's so a foul if, downfield. So if the back judge is 60 yards away from the referee after a long bomb. I've got DPI on 35 defense. That's what he does. And then – there's an ask by anybody, anybody disagree with that. In case there's a second set of eyes, it's going to say yes. Then they're going to have a crew conference, right? But if there's no, it's a go, and he announces it. Well, I think we're just – we've got to get better at that uh, because I think that there is, there's penalty administration and there's game kind of enforcement that I think we can speed up. Beyond the things we're doing this year uh, that you've you know, read about, I think just basic game administration we can speed up. Is there the danger, and has it, exi has it happened, that there would be more than two replay reviews at the same time? So Dean Blandino is there, Al Riveron is there, his assistant, and has there been a time where a third person would be needed? Yeah, they have a third person there, uh, and it, it's a little very... Uh, during the season, it's it's a, it's one of the the uh, official, one of the supervisors of officials, one of the trainers. So they split it up that way. They've had zero issues on not being able to get to each call, zero, and they tracked them because we wanted to know that when we went to centralized, uh, you know, a few years ago, and they've tracked them all the time. They don't view it as an issue at all. Could they get to a third one? Yes, they could. Does it happen very often? Very infrequently. So that is the not challenge, concern. really, Peter. You know what the, Peter, the challenge is? Yeah. Challenge is, is that, you know, you've got one o'clock windows, you've got four o'clock windows, you've got Sunday night, you've got Monday night, you've got Thursday night. You know, at some point, Dean and his family got to get together. <laughs> that's the challenge. And that's yeah. what I worry about. And I call them all the time about it. I tell them, go home. 
Go home. You don't, yeah. you, you don't need to be in the office. Go home. Because when you go to a system like this, you know, you, those, at those games, they don't get to just go have a burger. I mean, they right. got to be there and watch every single play. Rich, you know what the criticism on social media of Dean is a lot? I mean, and, and I'll, I'll give you my thought in a second, but he's never been a referee. This is one of the most interesting careers that, you know, in the 33 years I've covered the NFL, the, the vice president of officiating has never been an official. Right. I mean, he just ro- he rose up the ladder, and people really got to trust him. Is it even remotely concerning to you that Dean Blandina was never thrown a flag? Yeah, great question. Uh, no, uh, because I guess I was that guy that uh, when I became the general manager of the team in, in Tampa, I had never been a scout. I'd never been on the personnel side. I'd been a lawyer. And, uh, and Jerry uh, Angelo and Tim Ruskell had been nice enough to take me on some scouting trips and show me the ropes. And then I got made the GM. And I, and I, I got all that criticism of you haven't been in there, you haven't done it. You haven't, you know, I, I heard it all. And I said, you know what? I don't have any defense to it. All, the only way I can defend it is by what we do on the field and how, what our results are. And I think that's what Dean's done. Dean, I think if you want to talk to people about Dean, the people to talk to, and clearly in your business you have to talk to him off the record, but you talk to the referees, you talk to the officials, and you talk to the credibility that he has with them because I, I do, and uh, it's really solid, really good. And that's because Dean is very detailed, He's been there. He's been sat in the room with, with all of those guys, our, his predecessors, but now his predecessors, the officials. And uh, we're fortunate to have Dean Blandino as our head of officials. This is the MMQB podcast. So here's a question. Do you like Major League Baseball? And do you like watching Major League Baseball? Of course you do. I know I do. And I'll be starting to watch every day very soon with the start of the MLB season. I catch every Boston Red Sox game that I can. Well, if you're like me, you need T-Mobile because they're giving away a free year of MLB TV premium. That's a $112.99 value, absolutely free, and only for T-Mobile customers. And yeah, here's the best part. With T-Mobile One, unlimited data means unlimited baseball. Unlimited data. That means you can keep up with your favorite team from almost anywhere. Every pitch, every big moment, every walk-off homer. All without worrying about blowing up your phone bill. Stream, post, and share all things MLB. Sound good? Here's how you get it. First, get T-Mobile, obviously. Second, download the T-Mobile Tuesdays app from the App Store. Third, and this is important, on April 4th, Get your free year of MLB TV Premium in the T-Mobile Tuesdays app. That's it. Then you can just relax and enjoy any out-of-market game, plus unlimited stats, highlights, and more from almost anywhere. Remember, April 4, get your free year of MLB TV Premium through the T-Mobile Tuesdays app or go to T-Mobile.com backslash MLB. Top 3% of data users, greater than 30 gigs per month, may notice reduced speeds. Activate HD feature. Otherwise, video typically streams at 480p. Web-enabled mobile device and qualifying service required. MLB trademarks used with permission. Blackouts and other restrictions apply. See terms of use for details. What, if any other rule that was passed this year do you think should be of particular interest to the fans listening to this program yeah uh so i would say that this was uh you know and i'll say a couple things we can talk about the game but i I think that um and the state of the game but i think that two things number one i think the failures in the sense of i think we continue to be a league that people want to talk about expansion of replay but i think that thankfully uh, we haven't gone down that path. Uh, I think that's always something that I get nervous about and, and scared that at some point we're going to fall into that trap. Uh, but I think that's one thing I would say as a, as a positive, that, that the replay proposals to expand it and to create, in my mind, more stoppages 
and to create more uncertainty in, um, in officiating did not pass. I, I think that's a good thing. I think if you look at um, the other rules, you know, we put the, we put the touchback rule back in for one more year. It's an important rule to us. Uh, Meaning getting if there's a touchback, you get the ball at the 25-yard line. Yep. And, we, and we probably could have passed it permanently. But quite frankly, we're pretty good as a league of saying, listen, when we do something, we like to see two years of data before we pull the trigger right. to know that we're right or know that it's going in the right direction. Uh, but I think that, that is something that um, last year we got a lot of pushback. Uh, this year, I think I, I don't think anybody voted against it. So, I, I mean, it's um, that was interesting. I, I didn't know what to expect because last year, I can assure you, we had two days of discussions. And... Um, I think it's worked out just what the college coaches told us you, it would. You are, you, uh, we've talked about this on many occasions, but this is basically a conservative group of people. And new ideas and, some, and things that some people would see as risks uh, will automatically say, no, we're not going to do that. So for years, I'd say for at least three or four years before – 2015 when you put the new PAT rule in we would talk and we would say this is insane this is idiotic to have a 99.4% play it's totally not competitive it's a gimme you got to get rid of it you got to get rid of it you knew it I think a lot of people on the competition committee knew it but you couldn't get any uh, you couldn't get any traction around the league to do that so I'm just curious right now this has become a play that I think is at about 92% now, 93 right? this year. 93? 93 this year. And, and, I mean, it's caused a couple of kickers to lose their jobs. And, 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 and I just wonder now, do you get any pushback right now after two years of doing this, Rich? Is there any pushback on the PAT rule? Zero. Zero. Uh, zero pushback. No, it's interesting. Nobody Peter. proposed it this year to get rid of it. Oh no, no, absolutely not. Last year, when we, you know, so let's go back. Two years ago, we said let's do this for one year. We were going to propose it for one year again, and then really the members kind of membership told us, no, no, we're ready to make it permanent. So we put it on the floor permanent, and it was unanimous. So I think that shows you that one thing we're really good at as a league is is adjusting to change. But one thing we're not very good at as a league is being receptive to change. So I think that's I think that's what if there's something I've learned on the competition committee is there's a difference between being receptive, which we're not very good at, and adjusting, which I think we're very good at. And so I think um, that's where I've kind of learned on, on rules passages you have to do. But this year, Peter, one thing that stuck with us um, on the competition committee is that the tape uh, was really good. And I, what I mean by that is... What do you is, mean? Yeah. Yeah, so we watch every injury, right? I mean, it's ours. We watch every concussion. We watch lower leg injuries. We watch all the quarterback injuries. We watch shoulder injuries. We watch a lot of injury tape and um, all major injuries, right? We're trying to see... Because you're always looking for a pattern. It's really how we came up with... Um, one year, we came up with the horse collar rule. Well, it came up because we were watching the injury tape and three guys got hurt on the same tackle. And we said, hey, that we never seen that technique before. And so we kept watching, and then we proposed the rule. So we watched the tape. What I've found this year, and I think the committee uh, found, is the players and the coaches are to be commended with as many safety rules as we've put in over the last 10 years. And as much as we've made it hard on defensive players at times to play in the secondary, in using their helmet, in all the limits we put, boy, oh, boy, they've done it. They have changed. The, the play and the tape you watch, when the injuries occur, they occur for different reasons. They occur because somebody falls and hits on the ground. They occur because somebody goes to the tackle, puts their head to the side, and then hits the knee, hits the helmet. They occur for a lot of reasons. We didn't see a lot of fouls and a lot of defenseless player violations. We just didn't see that, and it was because the play's better. And I give the players a lot of credit, and I think what I'm – proud of is we've been at we've had a system at the nfl where we've really emphasized health and safety guess what so has college football and guess what so is high school football and now you can see this generation coming in and the game's played a little differently and yet what's going to happen over the next few years i believe is that there are going to be more stories about players from 
the 70s and 80s and 90s who were going to have significant health issues. And so everybody's going to scream at the NFL, what are you doing? And rightfully so. Rightfully so, because the NFL needs to have that as an absolute huge uh, uh, part of its business. But the fact is, there's nothing that can be done right now about a guy who retired 30 years ago. You know? Right, and under a completely different set of rules in a game and a different set of equipment and everything else. Um, that said, we need to take care of those players, which, which we, are, we should as a league. That, that's our duty, and, and we, we need to do that, and we will. I think from us, for those guys that have, you know, I've spent uh, 23 years in this competition committee, I will say, say to you that we start and in the middle and in the end, it's health and safety. That's what we're about as a committee. We love the competitive aspects of it. Be assured of that. The competitive aspects of our game right today are fantastic. Third lowest margin of victory in the history of football. And the only two that were lower, 1932, 1935. I would wow. think the average score, scoring, total scoring in those games, I guarantee, certainly it's not in the 40s. might have been in the 20s. Uh, we're scoring 45 points a game, and the margin of victory is thir- third lowest ever. We had the, I think it's, oh, Peter, it's the 27th year in a row where more than four or more teams, new teams, qualified for the playoffs. So when you look at game competitiveness and league competitiveness, we're in a really good place. But I think what I'm proud of from watching the tape this year is we're really starting to see the change in the way all the players play the game and how they play within the rules. And one of the things we're doing is, is we um, – emphasized that we, we want to empower the league office to suspend players for egregious hits. And so we had some coaches say, wow, well, that's a big deal. I mean, egregious hits, you know, first-time offender. We said, hold it. There, we only have a tape of three. Let's not act like this happened a lot. But when we see this hit, this, we want to tell players this has no place in our game. We told the players, we met with the NFLPA, hey, this is important to us. See these plays? We don't want them in the game. And, and if they come in the game, first of all, the on-field officials empowered to eject you, but that's tough to do, and we're not a league that's done that a lot. But secondly, we're, we're telling the league office, we favor suspension. And um, Is there any way that Dean Blandino on replay can recommend, a, can recommend an ejection? No, no. That is an on-field, that is an on-field call. There's no, nothing to that. And we watched a lot of tape. And, 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 Should there and, be? Should no, that? no, I don't think so, Peter, because I think, first of all, we don't have very many instances of that. We eject uh, people mainly for non-football acts, kicking, fighting, punching, uh, grabbing an official. We, we, that's, who, that's who we've traditionally ejected. When you start getting into the football acts, it gets harder. Slow it in slow motion. You know, do, there's a lot of things going on. And then there's a, there is a real difference between us and college football and ejections. When they eject, there's 98 other players standing on the sidelines. When we eject, there isn't. We only have 46 at dress. So, you know, when you eject and you eject to safety and they only dress three, they've only got two. And how does it impact special teams? And how does it? So we've always said that ejection has to be very obvious. It has to be clear that that's what's to happen. The beautiful thing about suspension is, and first of all, we're not in favor of suspensions. We're talking about very few. But the good thing about suspensions is you get to watch the video. The player gets to appeal. You have a process that goes on during the week before there's a determination. To us, that's a good way to go on these hits. We don't think there are very many. We hope there are none next year. But we just wanted to make sure that people knew that if there are, that that, that's okay. Rich McKay, chairman of the NFL Competition Committee, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Peter, happy to do it. Thank you. It's the MMQB Podcast. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. 
Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. One more time, do it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. With Jack Del Rio on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Jack, a culture shock it must be for you, a kid who grew up loving the Raiders, and you've got pictures of John Madden and Tom Flores on your wall, and now you're going to leave the place sort of of your birth and where you grew up to go to Vegas. What's that like for you personally? Well, I mean, they're mixed emotions, you know, when you... Um, Talking about a place that, where I grew up, uh, played a high school championship game in that Coliseum, uh, and uh, family and friends and all that, um, the, the the fans of that area. That's it's a sad moment for them. But I think the other part is, you know, we're we're playing on that dirt infield. At the beginning of every year, the stadium is in disarray and needs it needs to come down. Um, and so, you know, we're going where we get a chance to get all that, and uh, and really put ourselves on an even uh, where we can fight in, in the league and have an even shot at being one of the top teams perennially. Uh, it's, so I think, I think the, the mixture of the you know, sadness from what I grew up loving and, and really why I'm so excited to be there, bring a championship back to Oakland, uh, and then the excitement of knowing that you know, there's a great opportunity in front of this franchise, in front of this uh, organization for going down and doing that, doing its thing in, in Vegas. You made a great point in this media breakfast about how you have sort of this 30% rule where a large part of these guys on your team right now are never going to be on this team in Vegas. Right. That has to be, I would assume, a part of your focus when you do talk to your team. It will be. I think you know the biggest thing will be um, to settle the families and all the, all the thoughts that the wives... Um, have about you know the, the the wives want to want a nest. They want to know where their kids are going to be, and they want you know the schools and all that. So we need to answer those questions about when that's all um, really needs to be part of the discussion. And the other part is let's just make sure that we're focusing on the here and now because the reality is you know that's going to happen. There's going to be turnover. Um, some of the guys that are going to worry about Vegas aren't going to be going to Vegas, and that's that's the reality of the of the NFL. When you see franchise shifts, you see the distractions that it can be. Mm-hmm. And that re- you've got a Super Bowl contending team. Mm-hmm. That has to at least slightly concern you that you're not only going to be thinking about football, you're going to be thinking about all this tangential stuff. We are, and we're going to be, uh, be thoughtful and, uh, and, and design a plan and then seek to execute that plan. But I, I don't think you can discount the fact that that is there. I think you have to recognize that is there and address the families um, and make sure you have a, have a plan. And I think lead these guys through this. We'll, we'll see. It's definitely another piece uh, that you have to contend with. Finishing with Jack Del Rio. So in your mind, how much of this are you really worried about? I worry about everything. That's what coaches do. Yeah. Uh, but worry doesn't really solve it. You know, I think um, for me, I'm, I'm more about kind of recognizing the challenges um, and, uh, you know, mapping out my strategy and then going and attacking it. And so, you know, that's, that's served me well. You know, um, I'm not a worrisome kind of guy. I'm going to plan uh, the best I can. I'm going to utilize the strengths around me. We're going to put a plan together, and then we're going to go attack that thing. And and part of that is dealing with uh, some of these potential distractions. Part of what makes your approach to it interesting is that I think a lot of coaches would be in sort of roadblock mode. You just spent an hour and 15 minutes almost in a light way talking about it. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be part of the way you approach it? Well, it will be. I'll, I'll be myself when it comes to you know dealing with with this issue, like like I am with every other issue. But I, there will there will be thoughtfulness. There will be consideration. 
uh, there will be a plan, and then we will seek to execute that plan. And it doesn't have to be heavy. Um, it can be a little bit light. Sometimes the message is easier to digest when it's a little bit light. Jack Del Rio, good luck. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. I want to ask my listeners a quick question. How would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free? Well, all you have to do is remember these four letters, MMQB. Easy enough, right? Keep listening. I'll explain. Look, we all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal. No one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients right to your door. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Now comes that part about the three free meals. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash MMQB. Three free meals just by adding in MMQB. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Please don't wait. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash MMQB. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, uh, I'm joined by Mark Purdy, the sports columnist for the San Jose Mercury News. I assume that's still your title, or what y- yes. is it now? Y- yeah. <laughs> well, we're multi-platform like every place else, but mercurynews.com. Uh, but I am, yes, a sports columnist for the Bay Area News Group and the Mercury News. For those who uh, are not experts on Peter King history, Mark Purdy was the columnist of the Cincinnati Inquirer when uh, I was there uh, from 1980 to 1985. And uh, I was just talking to Mark here. We're at the league meetings in Phoenix, Arizona, about um, my favorite column he ever wrote. When Fernando Valenzuela (laughs) first came to Cincinnati, the Dodgers played the Reds. He wrote a column welcoming Fernando to town in Spanish. Yeah. And I love that. Uh, that was, uh, Tommy Lasorda liked it too, actually. <laughs> but even though I made fun of him in the whole column. Yeah. That's a long time ago. Yeah, that wow, was Wow, we fun. had so much fun. We're yeah. having fun now, but it's it's different. It's yeah. di- When you're young, it's a lot funner. So I'm having but Mark. thank you for remembering that column. I'm, I'm having Mark on the podcast because Mark um, has been in San Jose since. 1984. Yeah, since 84, and, and I, you know, so every time I go cover the 49ers or the Raiders or I'm out in the Bay Area at training camp, you know, I see Mark a lot, and he always, when I knew him, the reason I wanted to have him on the podcast is that he's really a voice of reason. He can um, he can wade through the nonsense, and there's been a lot of nonsense about the Raiders moving, and so that's why I wanted to have him on for a few minutes to just simply talk to um, our listeners about what exactly just happened. Because yeah. honestly, Mark, I i mean, here we are in Phoenix. We're at the league meetings. And yesterday, on Monday, it was announced that the Raiders in either 2019 or 2020 will be playing in Las Vegas. And it's just, first of all, if you would ask me one eternal verity about the NFL 10 years ago when I was in the middle of covering it, I would say, well, I do know. They're never going to move, never going to have a franchise in Las Vegas. Yeah. So now they do a 25-minute press conference yesterday with all the particulars and not a single question right. is asked about gambling. That's something? It's just bizarre. Yeah. But, but so I think what I wanted to ask you in general is how unbelievable is it again after leaving for L.A. in 1982 um, that, again, they're headed south with the son of Al Davis moving them to Las Vegas, how would you say, how would you describe the reaction of the Bay Area today in the wake of this news? Well, the people who have been following it all along are not stunned by this. This has been kind of a slow motion thing developing over the last two or three years. And you got to promise to cut me off if I start going too deep into this. (laughs) You know, Um, I've been writing about this for so long. 
Um, and I can get into all the ins and outs of the politics of Oakland, and, and then we all know about the politics of the NFL. Um, I, I don't, the people who have been following this are not stunned at all. Um, the pe- there are, there's a hardcore of Raiders fans that are really upset by it, and I get that. But this all began years ago. Uh, you might even say it began in 1995 when then it was Oakland throwing $220 million of public money at, at the Raiders to move back from L.A. and kind of steamrolled the A's. Uh, I mean, I, I talked to the people who owned the A's at that time, Steve Schott and Ken Hoffman. They, they had a plan at that time to remodel the Oakland Coliseum into a really nice baseball-only facility. They sit down with the JPA, the joint... I, I don't want to go too big. The, the Coliseum is, is jointly controlled by the county and city. So the A's owners sit down with those guys and say, uh, th- we'd like to remodel the Coliseum. This, this is what we'd like to do, and we have these plans. And they say, okay, that's all very nice, but you're not going to be able to do that because we're bringing the, the Raiders back. And if you don't stand down on this, uh, you'll never be able to sell luxury suites because all the, all the businesses in town want the Raiders to come back, and you, you've got to go along with this. And from that moment to so me— So they did? So they did. And from that moment to me, it kind of set up where we are today. In this, if you heard the NFL people talk yesterday, and I talked to Eric Grubman after this, um, one of the real issues in the Raiders uh, leaving was that the NFL wanted to come in and kind of be a co-developer, it sounds like to me, on this, this property, but couldn't do so because the A's are there. And Oakland kept kind of kicking this can down the road of the two teams sharing this each team wanted its own venue. The A's tried to move some other places, including San Jose, where I work. And uh, the city was not cooperative in finding the A's another place to play so that the Raiders could have the Coliseum property on their own. And uh, this goes back. You could, This started, actually, with Mayor Jerry Brown, who's now the governor of wow. California. Who it was first kind of, it kind of came up. There was, there was talk of a, a downtown Oakland property that the A's wanted to go to and build a downtown ballpark in Oakland. But Mayor Brown, Jerry Brown, decided, no, that should be for condos. We want downtown to be revived that way. A legitimate point, but but that is an example of, okay, well, then we got to stay at the Coliseum. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball is not letting the A's move because of the territorial rights issue. Uh, and so they, 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 incredibly to me, the Oakland and the Alameda County kept signing these leases with the Raiders and the A's, these kind of short-term leases once the initial ones ran out, that kind of kept kicking the can in the road. And the leases conflicted with each other. The lease terms in one conflicted with the lease terms in but the isn't other. It, isn't so, it? So, so now, yeah, go ahead and cut me off. Too. No, I was, gonna, I was just going to ask you this. So yesterday I ran into Mark Davis uh, at the restaurant here. Yeah. And I said, Mark, what did it all come down to? I said, did it come down to the fact that whether this is the correct wording or not, they chose the A's over you. And he mm-hmm. said, when they committed to the A's for 10 years, you right. know, most recently, when they committed to the A's for 10 years, that was it. I knew then that we were never going to get right. anything done. Do but you, you believe that? Uh, yeah, I believe that was a big part of it. But you know why they committed to the A's for 10 years? Because the A's kept wanting to do this other stuff, and they couldn't do it. So they said, well, we're going to leave. And Major League Baseball, Bob Manfred, the commissioner, called the mayor of Oakland. At that time, it was Gene Kwan. We've been through these. And said, if, if you don't sign this 10-year lease with the A's, we're going to f- let the A's free to go anywhere they want. So Oakland was backed in a corner then. I guess what I'm saying is Oakland never had like a proactive plan to do all this. In my view, what should have happened is seven, eight, nine years ago, they should have put together a strategic plan. Let's try to keep both teams uh, we can't spend a lot of public money, if any, but let's figure out a way to do it, which would have involved finding the A's a ballpark site to build somewhere else in Oakland with their own private money, clearing that site for the Raiders, allowing then the Raiders and the NFL to come in and develop that property. Instead, they just kind of waited and waited and waited. And you heard when I asked Mark Davis that question yesterday in the presser about when was the turning point for you. And remember, he's, when, they went to, when they tried to go to L.A., in a three-way race and finished fourth. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he turned back to Oakland, and it wasn't the city. Again, this complicated setup. It wasn't the city, but a county supervisor told him, well, now you, we have the leverage, 
and you're going to sign a lease with us, and we're going to raise your rent. And that just set off Mark. So, so the factor you mentioned, the fact that I mentioned, you know, the current mayor of Oakland is a woman named Libby Schaff. She's very sharp. But her term just began last year, or I guess 2015. But by the time she got to it, some of this machinery it was gone. Been, it, yeah. Some of this machinery had all been set in motion. You know, it was interesting last week when uh, when uh, when Oakland gives what appears to be a legitimate proposal. Having covered the NFL for 33 years, the NFL doesn't respond well to proposals that are given them right. given to them at 11:59 p.m. when there's a decision right. due at midnight. Yeah. So, so I knew that that was wasn't going to work, whether or not it was real. But I just think, Mark, this has been this from the NFL's point of view. Oakland is never going to give significant public money, and good for Oakland. Yeah, really, right. they shouldn't Oakland. have done it in '95. They, in right. my mind, they're never going to give significant public money, and the NFL has proven again and again that they are going to choose stadiums yeah. over fans. Right, they're going to do that. They're going to say we're going to get a beautiful stadium. Yeah. And don't worry, we'll find the fans. It doesn't matter that... And I looked this up on marketsize.com with something in Wikipedia. And if you look at the San Jose, Santa Clara, mm-hmm. San Francisco, uh, Oakland, Oakland. Uh, Hayward, mm-hmm. Vallejo, you know... It depends how far yeah. you want to take it. Yeah, Mar- exactly. Marin County, but San, if up to you Santa Rosa. At, if you look at that and then you look at a similar size area... In Vegas, mm-hmm. it's four times the size. Yeah, it's eight point yeah, seven million right. to two point two million, or right. something like that. So it's this is what, and I mean, Stephen Ross, he, he, he you know, one of the reasons he voted no is very simply is I think it is insane that the NFL now will have one team in the San Francisco Oakland area, yeah. and it's forty nine miles away. It's just, I mean, I just think there's something. That and I and I don't not blame Mark Davis for part of this too because in my opinion when the New York Giants needed a new stadium, okay, when they feel they needed and they needed financial help to keep their franchise, the Mayors brought in the Tishes and right. they sold them half the team. So in my opinion, Mark Davis should have said, "I don't have the money in to compete in the modern NFL. I need to bring in one of these right. Silicon Valley billionaires." To be the co-owner, and it's not going to be a Steve Ballmer situation where you end up giving him the team. You know, you write very strict rules, and you mm-hmm. each own half the team, and blah blah blah. But why do you think Mark Davis was unwilling to take on a partner? I think this is some. I, he has never said this to me, but I think this is something he promised his dad. I will never sell out the Raiders. The Raiders are always going to be in the in our, family. in our family. And uh, you and I dealt with the Brown family in Cincinnati, right? They will never, in my yeah. mind, ever let anyone else control that franchise as long as there is a, you know, error. But you know what? I'll hair. say this, Mark. I mean, and people, uh, this is probably a little bit too inside football, but I'll trust Katie Blackburn with a franchise over a lot of people. That's Mike Brown's yeah. daughter, Paul Brown's right, granddaughter. Right, right. She's one of the sharpest people right. I've met covering the NFL. Yeah, yeah. By the I, way. I, yeah, I agree. And you and I both remember when she was a teenager hanging yeah. around the stadium. So that's 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 near here or there. You just brought up something about the Bay Area market that we, we haven't even discussed. You know what the NFL really wanted? They wanted the Raiders to go in with the 49ers and play at Levi's Stadium jointly. That stadium project was designed, and there are two home locker rooms in there. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, and the day that the, that the stadium was open, dedicated or whatever, I asked Commissioner Goodell, are you disappointed that there are not two home teams here, meaning the, the Raiders? And he said, well, at some point the Raiders, his answer to me was, at some point the Raiders are going to have to make a decision. Uh, and I, I kind of took that as Goodell was seen at that point. He knew. He knew. The NFL and, has known and, this and that for a was long how many time. years ago. But but Mark Davis just will would not ever consider going to Levi Stadium and sharing it with the 49ers. You know what's funny? And again, I wonder if that's something his dad uh, promised him, or made he made yeah. they didn't uh, promise he made to his dad, um, because you know that Levi Stadium is closer geographically to Oakland than it is to San to San Francisco. Yeah. And. Um, and, and Levi Stadium is very, uh, very suitable for transportation 
to a lot of the areas. Sure. Ba- like well, Sacramento is well, not that it, far. You you know. Know, it's not, yeah, well, and Jed York, the owner of the 49ers, told me the 49ers actually have more season ticket holders in Sacramento than they do in San Francisco. Uh, which, which is I, crazy, which, which, yeah. Uh, but I do believe if you look at, you know, uh, uh, let me talk about the Bay Area a little bit and cut me off at this point. You're right, eight, eight, about 8 million people. Three major cities. San Jose is the largest at a million, and that's one reason the 49ers want to move down that way. They have more fans in San Jose than in San Francisco, obviously. Um, uh, San Jose is a million. Oakland, or, uh, San Francisco is 850,000. Oakland is about 400,000. So you add those three cities together, it's a little over 2 million. That means <laughs> most people in the Bay Area don't live in any of those cities, and they access the, the sports teams based on the teams they like and the sports they like. And so it's different than any other market in America. It took me a while to get my arms around it when I moved yeah. there. Um, and that plays into this, too, I think, in, in the sense that, you know, there are people in Oakland who are really upset about this. But the people who in the, in the other areas, in those in-between areas, or in San Jose or San Francisco, or Raiders fans are like, well, you know, maybe I'll go see him play in Las Vegas. I, re- I really think there's sophisticated fans there that kind of enjoy that. They, they, there's a real hardcore of those Raider fans that – it's their, you know, the Raider Nation and all that. But uh, I think one reason, certainly the mayor, current mayor of Oakland, was not willing to throw over public money is she understood that dynamic of, well, there are smart people in the Bay Area understand why we shouldn't do this. Um, it was crazy to me in 1995 when they did throw 200. It's, it's come full circle. You know, the Raiders, or the Oakland threw $220 million at the Raiders to get them back in 95. Now this other city's throwing $750 million to get the Raiders to move. It's nuts, isn't it? It's, Mark, it's just nuts. Here's what I want to know in our remaining time. What do you think it's going to be like at the Oakland Coliseum in 2017 and 2018 when yeah. they play there? I mean, the bizarre thing is that the Raiders have stunk for so long. Now yeah, no, they're I good. Know. I mean, I, I understand the fans are going to be really ticked off, but... If the Raiders are seven and one, aren't they going to come to the game to yes. watch the Broncos? Yes, I, I believe that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I believe that totally. I, I, you and I have been around the sport long enough. If teams win, people will come out to support yeah. them. I, it's going to be a weird dynamic. Will Mark Davis go out in the field before the game as he always has? And he, he used, he, he kind of loves that part as his dad did. Al loved to go out before the game and watch the players warm up, and fans would yell at him, and he'd shake their hands and all that. Mark Davis is going to have a tough few years here in that part of the game. But as he said yesterday, he hopes they, I don't think fans will take it out on the players and the coaches. Um, it's a sociological experiment, and somebody in Berkeley may write a paper about it. Uh, I, well, I wonder, I mean, come- you know, part of the whole cultural experience there is the tailgating, too. You've been yeah. there. You know that. Oh, yeah. I wonder if people just show up to tailgate and then won't go in the games. Wow. You know, that's part of their that's part of their deal. Uh, I are they, going, they they aren't going to boo the Raiders. I, and they ha, now they're good. They have a season ticket waiting list. As you know, they cut the capacity down right. by tarping that upper deck. It's another weird part of the story. Um, the, the, the upper deck that Oakland paid to build for the Raiders when they moved back and then tarped off because they couldn't sell the tickets. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, that, that's a bad answer for a columnist to have. My motto is opinions on demand. I should have a strong opinion about it. But... This has never happened before in, in the history of the league right. where a team knew. Uh, I, we were talking earlier in 1981, the Raiders were in Oakland, and everybody kind of knew. They were, there were serious talks about them moving to L.A., and, uh, but it wasn't official, but it was in the air. And in 82, they did move after, after the 81 season, then they moved. And I talked to Jim Plunkett, who played on that 81 team. They had a really bad season after having a really, I think they, went all either the Super Bowl or the AFC title game the year before and they had a bad season in 81 and then 82 they go to LA remember and then they of course they won the Super yeah. I said so was that 81 season it was because of all the distractions and he said well no I think we were just a really bad team mm-hmm. and we had injuries that year and so forth he said but I'll tell you every night when we went home my wife would ask me about going to LA and and uh, and our families would say should we buy a house you know should we buy a house down there what should we do and every player had that and that's what these Raiders players are going to face over the next few years. I mean, maybe the bigger question is how the Raiders players are going to handle this more than how the fans are going to handle it. Last question for Mark Purdy, columnist for the San Jose Mercury News. So what do you think the future of football is in Oakland and in San Francisco proper? 
Hmm. You know, I've heard talk about, you know, a second team coming there and playing in one of those cities. Um, wow. <laughs> Every time I think, you know, the 500-pound gorilla that's the NFL has gone f- too far in being a 500-pound gorilla, they seem to find new ways to generate more money and, and more interest and more deals. And it, it, you know, let's, let's say, if you, if you told me now, today that like tomorrow that property that the that the coliseum is on is available for development for a potential football stadium i bet the nfl would get involved in that somehow that's that's how valuable the bay area market is to me you said well because it's, 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 it, it, the bay area market is four times the size of las vegas because i'll tell you why someone someone a ridiculous a zuckerbergian yeah, character yeah. larry ellison is, of oracle is going to say is going to say Oh, so the Buffalo Bills can't get a new stadium? Yeah. The Jaguars are, are want to move? Okay, we'll turn them into the East Bay Bills or the Walnut Creek Jaguars. Right. And what we're going to do is we're going to build a stadium that's better than Cronky Stadium in L.A. And better than Levi Stadium. Yeah, certainly better than Levi Stadium. But I, I'm just telling you, just from now, I go there a lot. I go to the Bay Area a lot because my daughter lives there. And, Mark, this is... When I think of places in the United States that are monstrous, mm. that are fantastic, I think of the Bay Area first. Yeah. It's well, it it. I think it is. I think it is. I think it's terrible for for football, and it's terrible for the people there. That uh, some sort of I don't even want to call it a public trust like the Raiders because that's idealistic, but. Something that was so beloved and so much a part of the fabric is now not going to be there again. Yeah. And when I think of the the area without that team and with the 49ers an hour south, I just think this is wrong. They've got to have a team here. Yeah. Well, Oakland is losing the Warriors, too, remember. They're moving yeah. across the bay to, to San Francisco. It, 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 is, it is wrong, but... It's understandable. But it's wrong. It's wrong. I mean, and and <laughs> hey, three. Fr- did you ever think we see three franchise moves in fourteen months? Fourteen months. months? No. I mean, uh, that seems wrong to me too. Yeah. And uh, but the five hundred gorilla gorilla does what the five hundred pound gorilla wants, and uh, this is what the five hundred pound gorilla wants. I, I feel for those. I feel for those guys with the face paint in the parking lot every week that make it a really different experience. That there's. Uh, I know we got to stop, yeah. but. Think about this. I mean, the NFL, to me, one of the real issues is becoming too homogenized. That was a really unique place, and, and will continue to be the next couple of years, like Green Bay. You know, the NFL needs unique places like that. They don't need – sometimes I travel these games, and I wake up, and it's like kind of the same stadium and the same stuff, and I go, like, am I in Pittsburgh? I'm in Philadelphia. Where, where am I? Uh, it's all kind of the same. That is different there, and the NFL is going to lose that difference. I don't know what it's going to be like in Las Vegas. Maybe it'll be different and unique, and that'll be good for that, whatever that is. But I just, I just think the NFL loses a piece of its own soul by by leaving Oakland, and I feel I feel bad about that. But as you said, it's understandable. It's just not good. Couldn't have said it better, Mark Purdy, San Jose Mercury News. Thank you for putting this in perspective. Well, you're welcome. Anytime, and look to see you out in the Bay Area again soon. It's the MMQB Podcast. Thanks to my guests, Rich McKay, Jack Del Rio, and Mark Purdy. So before I leave, just a note from the meetings this week in Phoenix that I think is going to live on for a long time. And that is essentially that the NFL, as I've written and I've said this week, has chosen stadiums over fans. And while I understand as a business why the NFL is doing this, I do not think it's a good thing uh, for the long-term best interests of the NFL. First of all, San Diego Chargers move uh, to Los Angeles, where, in my opinion, they're not wanted. And uh, they abandon a fan base because they can't get a stadium deal done. Totally understand in a business sense why they're doing this. But I think at the end of the day, if you're a San Diego Chargers fan, 
what is so embittering about this is that you had a great home field advantage. You know, I, I was saying to somebody here at the meetings, you know, imagine if 10 years ago or so, Major League Baseball went to the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs and they said, hey, listen, you guys need to modernize your stadiums. You know, we can't have Fenway Park. We can't have Wrigley Field. I mean, they're just, they're old. They're falling down. And even though you could refurbish them, let's build shiny new stadiums that, and look, Major League Baseball has great new stadiums. Don't get me wrong. But there are people who's basically, before they die, say, I want to go to Fenway Park. I want to go to Wrigley Field. You know, it's on their bucket list for uh, what they want to see and what they want to do in sports. And so I think the NFL has grown so accustomed to being so over the top, desperately wanting beautiful stadiums and fantastic venues, which is admirable. But in a day when there's not a lot of public money being spent, all I know is that the NFL isn't a better place when the San Diego Chargers move to Los Angeles as the second team in a laissez-faire, at least currently, market. And I don't think the NFL is a better place by abandoning Oakland and going to Las Vegas. Now, uh, look, everybody in Las Vegas is excited. It's, it's, uh, it, it's manic there. People are going crazy for it. And I understand uh, they never thought in a million years. If you had said to me 10 years ago that in 2020 there'd be a, uh, an NFL team in Vegas, I said, you got to have your head examined. It won't happen. They will not go into business in a place like Las Vegas that has you know 76 casinos in the city of Las Vegas just not going to happen but so all the all the, all bets are off no pun intended when a city offers the NFL 750 million dollars to basically con, you know that's half going to be almost half the cost of what it's going to uh, take to construct a stadium an NFL quality stadium in Las Vegas and I just think at the end of the day that you have to decide what you want to be. Do you want to be a place that has the pretty, shiny new stadiums uh, and you may not have legitimate fan support? You may not have enough support in the corporate community. Uh, you know, you just don't know. I think it's the second team in Los Angeles. The Chargers can say whatever they want about, oh, we're going to have a, a great uh, home field advantage. We're going to have all this. I mean, they have no idea what they're going to have. And the Raiders, I think early on, they're going to be a good team. They're going to have tremendous support early on. And so I just, I, I just, I'm trying not to be a get off my lawn guy. I really am. But I do think that some of the most passionate days I've had in my 33 years covering the NFL have been in Oakland and in San Diego, seeing games where uh, it is so important to the fabric of those two cities. And I'll just end by, by saying this. You know, I talked about it a little bit with Mark Purdy uh, on this uh, podcast. You know, one other thing that sort of bothers me about the San Francisco-Oakland market right now. If you stand in downtown San Francisco or downtown Oakland, depending on traffic, it's going to take you about an hour to get to the venue where the only team in the Bay Area plays. Now, Oakland and San Francisco, now San Jose is also obviously a very big city as well. So I don't want to diss San Jose at all. But I think when you're talking about the Bay Area, you think of San Francisco and Oakland. You don't really think of San Jose, Santa Clara. And again, this is nothing to, to diss uh, that South Bay Area. It's a big part of this area, and it's a big part of what makes the Bay Area so big, so vast, so fun, so uh, so big an attraction for the NFL. But the fact that you could be standing in downtown San Francisco or downtown Oakland and be an hour away from an NFL game, I mean, to me, that just leaves San Francisco and Oakland ripe for taking somebody else's franchise. 
and finding some billionaire in Silicon Valley and basically saying, hey, I'm going to go steal the whatever. I'm going to go steal the Buffalo Bills or the Jacksonville Jaguars or whoever, and I'm going to bring them here. And look, I think that's going to be the next big issue in the NFL, quite honestly. That, you know, is the NFL going to be is the NFL going to be long-term okay with having one team in the sixth largest market, a market that over a wide swath has 8.4 million people? And to me, to have one team there and to have that team at the southern tip and outside of the two places, San Francisco and Oakland, that are synonymous with the Bay Area, I just think long-term for the NFL is not a very good idea. We'll see what happens but the NFL has traded facilities, uh, has basically said we value facilities more than we value fans. And that is a legacy move in the first three months of this year for the people who run and manage the National Football League. Thanks to my guests, Rich McKay, Jack Del Rio, and Mark Purdy. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to the other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, John Harbaugh, and Drew Brees. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget, leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work while I'm out on the road. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, T-Mobile, Blue Apron, and Zip Recruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you back in New York next week. <laughs>